you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. I am your host, Oliver Banks, and your guide to the world of retail transformation. This one is episode 82. We're seeing so much change at the moment, and I know we've said that in the past, but I really mean it now. The coronavirus pandemic has really surged a lot of innovation and a lot of change and a lot of new initiatives and transformations through. We're hearing stories about what would have taken five years to come through is happening now in just five weeks. So absolutely everything is getting faster. And I think my friend and retail strategist Carl Boutet has framed this the best way by saying, we've seen the Great Depression, we've seen the Great Recession, and now we're seeing the Great Acceleration. Right here, right now, in front of our very own eyes. And so I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Carl onto the show today. Carl Boutet is founder and chief strategist at Studio RX. And for over 25 years now, he's been working with giant global companies as well as small independent retailers to help them forge the right strategy and surge ahead in the retail market. He's got tons of experience. He's a part of many different advisory boards and also works as an advisor to the McGill Retail Innovation Lab. But the thing I really like about Carl is it's not just all theory. He's actually done a lot of hard graft as well. He used to be in Costco, where he worked for around 10 years, covering 65 locations. So he brings a wealth of operational experience, as well as the strategy and commercial sides as well. Before we get going with today's conversation, you can find the show notes from today over at obandco.uk slash 82. So without further ado, let's jump straight on into my conversation with Carl Boutet. Here we go. Carl Boutet, welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. How are you doing, my friend? I am very well, thank you, Mr. Ollie Banks. And it's a pleasure finally to be here. I mean, I'm loving London. I mean, the pubs are always fine and full with people. The food is great and the, and the Guinness is, can never be better. You are here in VR London, of course. <laughs> oh, right. You had to burst my bubble. I was, Ooh, a big figment yeah. of your imagination. Yeah, I, was just, I was actually starting to buy into my own hallucination. And there you, here you come along and already tear it away from me. Indeed. Well, I'm sorry to drag you back to reality. <laughs> But yeah, it poses an interesting question. You know, the world is in a, a really challenging place right now. You know, I don't want to use the word unprecedented. Too many people have used that word. But what are you seeing in the world right now? Oh, it's unprecedented. Well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what am I seeing? I was expecting to see more variability in terms of impact. I mean, I started 2020 in being in Asia mainly in Southeast Asia and Shanghai and, uh, you know, especially Shanghai, saw how they got impacted. You know, they, they were really struck by this before everybody else. Obviously, we know, we know how that sort of played out and we're apparently the ones returning to normal most, most quickly. So I was expecting there to be this real wide spectrum of how this was playing out and it was going to be a lot better in certain parts and a lot worse in others. And 
quite honestly, it's it's pretty bad everywhere. I mean, as even the ones that are that have seem to be able to come back or bounce back to such a thing are still struggling. I think the psychological or the behavioral impacts have been have far outweighed the logistical. And for instance, you know, coming back to the Chinese example, when I was tracking the numbers in February, the purchase managers index was sort of freaked out because of the supply being shut down and how, you know, that was, that was going to be the biggest problem for the Chinese economy was that all the manufacturing had come to, or 80% of it had come to a grinding halt. And this was going to be their biggest problem. And lo and behold, a month later, they're basically all up and running again. So we think everything's fine. But what we hadn't bargained for was that their demand would crash. So the supply is up, but the demand is maybe not 80% down, but is probably between 40 and 60% down, depending on the sectors. Mm. So, so it's still, they're still very much impacted. And I think it, if anything, it speaks to this notion of how just interconnected all of our economies and our realities really are. So anybody that's pretending to be unimpacted by this, I think, is really fooling themselves. I think that's really interesting. And particularly thinking about how at the beginning of this crisis, you're absolutely right. It was all about logistics, supply chains, being able to actually fulfill things. And then as soon as those have got into place, it shifted into more consumer mindset, consumer psychology, all of those sort of elements. It's been a really fascinating shift in that respect. Yeah. And there's obviously the you know vast differences depending on, this, on the sectors and, and, and especially between discretionary and non-discretionary so I mean, you're, you would still have some of those logistical issues if you're trying to get face masks. But if you're looking for a new pair of jeans, I don't think you'll have that much, really any problems getting, getting, getting those sent to you or, or eventually maybe even picking them up uh, on a curbside in front of your favorite apparel retailer. So it's, it's more around, I think, the behavior and, and where the jury's out and we won't know until you know, six, 12 months from now is what the longer term impacts of this and we know from behavioral science that usually the longer the crisis, the greater the impact on the behavior. So that if, if we have to live in this reality for another three to six months, it'll be, it'll be much tougher to come back to the way we were doing things before versus if we're back to relative level of, of normality by June or July, then maybe we'll be back to our old habits and, and then we can debate out second and third waves of all this. But but it's it so we're still trying to figure out just how and there's you know I think rightfully different camps of thought around it. You know, saying some people are saying, hey, this is you know some very smart people saying this is listen. I think we're overreacting. I think we're free, everybody's freaking out a little too much. We you know the human the human the resilience of human nature and our old kind of getting back to old habits is much stronger than we think. And then other very smart people as well are saying, no, no, no. Listen, we this has been waiting to come to a head for some time. We created a society that's over it's been over consuming it's gotten a little too comfortable with with things that don't really work and now we need to rethink a lot of this so this is a great opportunity to do so so you sort of have these these two i don't know if i call them extremes because then sometimes they are actually complementary but it's yeah i mean i think the, the the notion that the behavioral impacts i think are going to be much stronger than the structural one absolutely and those extremes are interesting to dive into as well where do you sit are we going to take a massive pivot? Everything's going to be different, or what? What, what are your perspectives? Yeah, no. I, so one of the things I'm, I'm, um, you know, where my mind's going these days is I don't like absolutes. Like I think our world is far more nuanced than that. And even though we're as, as a, you know, 
planet right now sort of collectively going through a lot of this the same thing and there's going to be different realities depending on where you are located um so there's i think we we need to be a little more nuanced in 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 responding to this and how the impacts are going to be but that said i think there are for instance i think there are some some pretty simple uh outcomes we can already expect especially around uh non-discretionary figure it out finally if i wasn't into online grocery which i know in the uk is 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 already had stronger penetration than here in north america mm. um, but if i wasn't a, an online grocery person and had never really even played around with it because it was you know just as convenient for me on my way back from work to pop into the grocery store and get you know get the couple of things i needed for that night and the next day the convenience of online grocery wasn't wasn't really built into my behavior now the things that I would pop in for every, you know, once a week, or they, especially the real non-discretionary stuff, the low consideration detergents and, and toilet papers and things that, you know, I don't really care what necessarily about the brand and maybe not as, maybe, maybe not as price sensitive. There's some debate around that too, but those, I could easily see myself sticking to that behavior of, I got it set up, my account set up, it's showing up easily. I just hit a button, you know, my, my regular orders and it comes in. 48 hours later, I have it on my doorstep, which unfortunately right now is not 48 hours. Realistically, our logistics aren't, aren't holding up for that right now. We're still, we still have really long delays, but yep. you know, we know that that's eventually going to get solved. So, so yeah, I think, I think especially if we go through a second and a third wave of this, my, my reflex will be pretty, you know, everything will be in place for me to each time go more and more towards that. I think that whole aspect, Carl, is really interesting. It's almost like an extended period of customer training. Oh, yeah which has certainly been a term that's been bounced around jovially in years gone past for me. But actually, this is a period where you're saying to many customers, if you want to do online, then do it and get used to it. And I can't remember the stats right off the top of my head, but there's been quite a large number of people that have even never done online shopping that have dipped their toe in the water for the first time, second time, etc. And they've now had weeks and weeks and weeks of exposure. If they can get the slot, if they can get the availability, that they are getting used to doing that online shopping. So I think as things do return to normal, I can certainly see that online. Obviously, it's been trending up for a number of years now, or basically forever. I think we'll see a bit of a step change there, a literal step change. Yeah, we're seeing the stats. I mean, there's a big jump up. You know, I've been predicting that by 2030, we'd probably be 50-50 physical, digital. And and really, as we get up to that point it's sort of be, the difference will become more and more irrelevant quite honestly just because i think it's going to it's going to blur and that's a you know, narrative i've been on for a couple of years now but i think this is you know accelerating that whereas maybe maybe that 50 50 and it won't be evenly distributed because there'll be say categories you know that will be a lot more prone to this and and it'll be tied to the convenience factor like grocery and the capabilities will be there which again aren't right now and we wouldn't want it to be 50-50 right now because this, our infrastructure would just collapse. I mean, we just don't have the... We're struggling right now in this part of the world with like an 8 to 10% jump, you know, and not forget about a 20 or 30. But we are seeing, we, we are seeing a, a significant uptick. I think the average number, if I had to say right now, is if we were at 10 to 15% e-com in a sector, we're now seeing it around 25 to 30%. Now it will settle back down a bit once physical retail reopens, and and but I think there'll be at least a five percent jump there that I suspect will stay on. So mm. maybe what would have taken us two three years to get from fifteen to twenty percent just happened in two three weeks. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I want to jump back to a word that you used just a moment ago: acceleration. 
And I know you have some great views on this. Tell me more. Well, I think I framed it a bit with that last response around how things that we were expecting to take two or three years are happening in two or three weeks. And I'm sure like you, conversations having with retailers and about their different initiatives. I mean, these things that they had on some sort of roadmap for three to five years now, you know, are, are now top of mind and are being pushed very quickly. Some of the examples I've been sharing with retailers around curbside pickup, we've had different tests going on and pilot programs and we're sort of you know, you're using your expression, dipping their toe in the water on it and not really fully committing to it because it was complicated and costly and they didn't really understand how, what the what the financial models were around it. And now they're just like, they have no choice but to embrace it. Yeah, take the plunge. So yeah, take the plunge and do something that they were planning to do again in three to five years, you know, or two to three years and now doing it, you know, it's already up and running. It's, not, it's far from perfect. But I think right now that's the reality. The thought occurred to me today that like a lot of different sectors right now that are working in this sort of these new paradigms, you know, I look at the entertainment you know business. I don't know how it is in the UK. I suspect the same as here is how many of these TV shows are now being filmed from people's homes. I mean, it's not this beautiful mm. TV set that we've come accustomed to. It's a lot, you know, filmed on an iPhone in the person's living room, basically like Saturday Night, Night Live is doing or these these iconic shows. So. I think the consumers have become are, are much more uh, forgiving right now of less than perfect. So if I do a, a click and collect with a, a you know a large local retail group or a Canadian retail group, and I had to wait thirty minutes in the parking lot for the person to come out with my order after I you know I went through their process and showed up in their parking lot and let them know I was there. In regular circumstances, that thirty minutes would have really irritated me. I'd be like, "How oh, this is unacceptable!" You know, I can't. Mm. But in these cases, I'm like, okay, you know, I know they've been wanting to do this for a while. I'm pretty familiar with the retailer. I know the complexity of getting something like this off the ground. I don't know if everybody else is because I've seen some frustration and it, it maybe you shouldn't be pardoning it because the fact is they've had years to prepare for this. They just, you know, didn't prioritize it. But I think that sort of speaks to the acceleration, the good and the bad, because I think we're also accelerating, I, I say, the unavoidable. So the, the demise, you know, it's is accelerating as well. If we're, we're seeing these bankruptcies or these creditor protections popping up all over, which we've been talking about for years in some cases, like JCPenney in the United States. I mean, so there's an acceleration, which is also, you could call in some cases a recalibration, but it's just making that recalibration happen. Sure. You know, it's a scary time for, for many involved in retail, particularly those that are on the front line and arguably have less influence on the future success of the company as a whole. So I think it's certainly an interesting time to be in and around the uh, industry. Well, I mean, I, you know, I know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you have as well. I mean, you know, we've been talking about for years that the front line that is doing almost automated work now, that it's not really adding a lot of value. I've been talking about brand ambassadors for a long time and but I think we'd see saying, okay, we don't need order takers anymore in retail. We need we need people that are really adding value into the equation. Yep. The reality is we need the order takers right now in, in non-discretionary categories, grocery and all that. We need the front line and they deserve more than they're getting. And I feel bad for them than the fact that probably once everything sort of catches up here in the five years from now, for instance, fulfilling online grocery, we have a large grocer chain here that just made an announcement as we were coming into the crisis that they were going to be building a super modern $400 million distribution center, which I believe is going to be mainly you know automated. Now, right now, those are my daughter, my 16-year-old daughters and her friends that are doing picking you know in, in the grocery store and preparing these orders that they can't keep up with. 
So those jobs are probably going to go away. So yes, the front line is not going to be as involved and it's going to be in some ways sad. You know, there is some nice human interaction there that could occur, but maybe in you know, the majority of the cases, I think it's it's sort of just repetitive tasks that are not necessarily adding that much value. But I still think there's going to be a lot of need for retail workers in the future, just not not in the capacity as we see them today. And some will learn to adapt to that. I did a, a webinar yesterday for the retail council here. And a question mm-hmm. I got was like, how do I, how do I convince my sales staff? Because I, I was pushing the notion of using more virtual tools to stay engaged with their customers. And, and when it says, how do I push my staff to embrace these tools? You know, and, and my answer is that, you know, they're probably not going to like the, if, they, if they don't, then they really don't have a future in this industry. Mm. I know it's hard to say that because some people have been very loyal to the business for a long time and really wear it on their sleeve. But if, if they're not prepared to embrace these new tools that are going to maintain their relevance in the, in the sort of this, this new di- dynamic that we're accelerating towards, then it's unfortunate, but I don't know if there's going to be, they may have to think about a, a different industry to go serve in, which I'm sure they'll, they'll, there'll be others where, where they can where they can do that. But but I mean, that front line is going to have to learn to adapt to this reality as well. I think it's really interesting. And like you say, there are going to be many, many different aspects to the retail colleague of the future, whether it's going to be maintaining robots or doing live streams <laughs> and video chats. It's going to be quite a different job. And like I say, it's all accelerating at us much, much quicker than we have certainly seen for the last few years. Absolutely. And, and as you're saying that, uh, you know, I had this analogy or a story that's popping into my mind of a friend that was working in the, in the innovation team for Nordstrom's out in Seattle. And uh, when a couple of years ago, when Nordstrom sort of recalibrated their innovation efforts and like a lot of retailers were doing three, four years ago and trying to downsize, unfortunately, which now I think is, is, is hurting them. But anyways, decided to downsize. He ended up working for a supplier of Amazon's whose job was around, the, uh, around maintaining the robots for the picking centers. <laughs> You know, so you go from the he was doing very human centric sort of innovation work at Nordstrom's to more around how do you support you know the robot ecosystem in Amazon, which which is I think really speaks to a lot of this a lot of this transformation and who's potentially going to be doing a lot better in this environment it doesn't speak well to our values as a society. It's the economic reality, and and we can get into more of the things that Amazon's doing putting them in that cohort that's embracing this acceleration and, and if anything, pushing it forward even faster. So they're the clear winners in these in these times with even just the mindset and the culture they have. But it's a whole new world. Let's stay with Amazon for the moment, Carl, because you're absolutely right. They have been pushing through innovation in retail, you know, whether it's Prime, whether it's their sort of robotic fulfillment centers, whether it's Amazon Go. What else are you seeing from them that's really exciting? For the future right at the moment yeah so every week something comes out that they're doing that just sort of kind of almost blows your mind right i mean i used to i used to write about that a couple of years ago I was like amazon in the, in the news today and there's some people that make a full-time job around just tracking their patents you know and each one being at hot air balloon distribution centers or 3d manufacturing on the road en route to the customer i mean there's always something that comes up and last week's last week was no exception probably one of the biggest ones where Jeff Bezos' famous yearly letter to shareholders saying, take a seat, because right now the $4 billion that I was talking about, you know, distributing uh, as part of the earnings that were going to go back to the to the investors, we're actually going to pile it all right back into our supply chain to vaccinate it so that we become the first, quote unquote, COVID-proof global supply chain. 
I mean, that kind of thinking, it just, just blows, blows people's minds because the magnitude of an endeavor like that is incredible. Think about it. I mean, if, if they become the only place that I can really trust, you know, around getting my supply and that's going to be because they've really invested heavily in, in how they automate their distribution, how they eventually hopefully treat their, their workers and their warehouses better and, and make sure that they're safe and healthy and their plants are guaranteed not to go down. Because there are some right now, you know, we're seeing cases in some of their distribution centers. But if they they get on top and they say, we're going to be the organization that's going to be testing the most, that's going to be taking the strongest precautions because, you know what, that $4 billion that we were going to pass along to our investors, we're keeping it for that. I mean, that that right there could make them worth hundreds of billions of dollars more you know, within, within a quarter. So it, it's that kind of thinking that just sort of blows my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's spin this round to help people take action mm-hmm. in the face of this big acceleration, in the face of Amazon investing too many zeros <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in the future. Yeah. What should what what should retailers be thinking about and be doing most importantly right. that is going to help them tangibly be different? Well, I think that you know the opportunity here, especially in this environment, is is really around engagement. And I'm thinking maybe more on the small to medium sized retailers. I know the high street is. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate around that right now. Who's going to be able to survive? What's the high street going to look like once we're, you know, we're 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 almost, you know, coming through this? And who's going to be left? And mm-hmm. is it going to be, uh, you know, sort of back to our two camps argument earlier? Is it going to be sort of a, a wasteland of just closed businesses because economically couldn't make it work, or is it is it going to thrive because people want to buy local and encourage and don't want to necessarily go out of too far out of the way to get the, the products. So the, the well-located high street is, is going to thrive more than ever. So you can have this sort of these two extremes. And realistically, what experience has taught us is it usually lands somewhere in the middle, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, of that 60% of our economy that sort of depends on that barely break-even retailer in the, in the best of times, while there's going to be a, a, you know, a chunk of those that are going to thrive in this, that are going to use this as an opportunity to really connect with their, you know, and if they already had a community, uh, then they have a certain, they certainly have an advantage where they've been building up rapport, uh, you know, be it through social media channels and, and holding events and just doing different things that showed that they cared about their customers and could go to a degree of engagement that a big box would have troubles replicating to just, you know, how they, maybe they curate uh, the way that they, you know, they source. There's clearly a push. I just was reading a Kantar uh, barometer this morning around buying local. And ironically, the place right now that's showing the strongest tendency to run buy local is China, which, which is ironic on several levels. But I mean, it still just kind of shows that that's another global phenomenon. I'm part of a group here in, in, in my province where a platform was launched a short month ago and there's already over 20,000 businesses registered on it, you know, to encourage the, the buy local movement. So wow. these are all things I think we can see these retailers sort of differentiate uh, in, in some ways. I mean, buy local is, is a way of differentiating against the large, the large conglomerates um, like Amazon. And then, this, you know, this engagement and curation, which I think uh, uh, can be a lot more interesting that they can go to a level of a depth, I guess, that, that the big uh, the big players are just not interested in doing anyways, because it's, it's just not part of their business model. Yeah, and that curation point, it feels like that's going to be a massive, unique selling point going forwards. That's going to be a differentiator for many, many businesses as to how well you do that curation and how you can ultimately personalize your business for a particular customer segment. Right. I think that's going to be really fascinating to watch. Personalization can go two ways. It can be very data driven, in which case, you know, the large will have an advantage. 
but it can also be around authenticity, mm-hmm. which I think is where, you know, where it's not just algorithms that are, but there's actually somebody that cares at the other end that's, that's putting some empathy into it, which data can do. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how that polarizes, but there also has to be a business model behind it too, because if I have a very niche, even though it's high care and, and high passion and, and high empathy, but if I can't make a living doing it, I mean, if I can't generate enough revenue to make it work, then there needs to be other factors put into consideration. And that was one of the thoughts I was struggling with because I was saying how before this crisis, those business models, I think we're finally starting to get some wind. You know, we were seeing some nice high street examples of businesses that were were finally kind of catching a break and that people were engaging with because of all these this community building and all this stuff. And then this crisis hits where they're basically wiped out because they were very high touch, very physical. And now their doors are basically slammed shut. And apart from maybe having uh, cute Instagram accounts, weren't necessarily, you know, really structured to deal with an online consumer. And the flip side of this, I was sort of very pessimistic going into this over the last, you know, over the last couple of years around pure play e-commerce players who I didn't think were sustainable because they needed sort of that physical engagement, you know, and we were starting to see some make their way towards that. And you're thinking about Caspers or Simbas if you're in the UK or, or you know, Warby Parker here and, and all these kind of players and, and then seeing like Wayfair and saying how, you know, Wayfair was too slow. I couldn't see Wayfair making it out, making it through 2020, quite honestly, at least not in, in its current form, would have to be acquired and mm-hmm. all these things. And now I'm sort of putting that all back into question because Wayfair, for instance, is, is probably one of the first to benefit from this crisis as people are spending more time in lockdown and looking at their raggedy old furniture and saying, oh, I probably do to, to make some changes mm. among the only, you know, sort of the first reflexes where, well, let's go to Wayfair and see what they have. <laughs> but you see that their their unit economics haven't really worked out better for them as much as their revenue has, has really surged. I think they went for, a tw- they were already a 20% increase, you know, year over year. Now this last quarter, I think they went 40%. But it, it's it actually has showed some of the the faults in their system too because their logistics were just not sustainable and the costs basically uh, outweighed the growth. So they that doesn't make them any any better a business model, but yep. it gives them definitely gives them more runway to figure it out. So I'm not claiming to have all the answers on this one. I'm just it's just interesting to kind of think through and back to probably we were saying earlier that the the duration of this is probably going to make those decisions for us around who can survive and who can't. That high street store, if they can't get their door their doors open again within a within the next month or two, I know each month that goes by that they have to be closed, I'm sure you're shedding 10, 15, 20% of those businesses are just not going to be able to come back. Mm, indeed. And I think that's, of course, very sad, but it's also going to be opportunities for a number of new companies, new innovations that are absolutely in various proof of concept stages at the moment. So absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm sure this will be defining. So in the past, I mean, retail has always been a very self-fulfilling industry where one goes and another one takes its place. Uh, my concern in this crisis, though, around that dynamic is twofold. First of all, what we've noticed in the last decade is when one goes, when especially local goes, it tends to be replaced by a large international, which is not necessarily beneficial to the local economy uh, or even the national economy for that matter. Mm-hmm. But this time, what I'm more concerned about, so that self-fulfilling it was an ongoing, you know, smaller percentage, call it 10, 10, 15% of the overall, maybe 5% in certain sectors. But now that it happens all at once, sort of like this, what my bigger concern is the trickle down impacts that has on, you know, all the suppliers. So let's take, for instance, if you were in the food business supplying restaurants, you were used to having a turnover where 
you'd already have into your margins accounted for uh, bad accounts of 5 or 10% of restaurants that just wouldn't make it. And now if all of a sudden you got 50% of those restaurants that are not making it and your accounts receivables have, you know, have vanished, how does a wholesaler weather that storm? And how does the people that supply that wholesaler? So that's that trickle down, you know, impact in broad and it's not just a fruit and vegetables person. It's, it's, it's all the different, you know, suppliers of the food and the, and the uniforms and all, you know, everything. So they're, so that we, I think that's in government officials are clearly aware of that. And that's why they've been, you know, so quick to, to put stimulus money in, in, in many cases to try to uh, avoid that. But, uh, in, you know, the, obviously the first thought are the employees, uh, you know, the impact on them, but then it just, it's much wider when, you know, when 30 to 50% of, a, of an industry could be wiped out over within months. And I think it's really fascinating when you really start to consider that web of the retail industry, it's not just the shops, it's all of those, you know, the suppliers and all the different companies, people that all feed into yeah. that shop ultimately. And I think that's going to be something certainly very interesting to see how everything fares and how ultimately it how it shifts and evolves for whatever the future holds. We were talking earlier about the real estate sector, the impacts it's going to have there. I mean, that's a massive sector. I mean, there's there's hard assets tied to all this too. But I was interviewed for a piece in Retail Insider uh, that was published this week, and I, you know, I, where I was raising, I think the biggest, the biggest concern, really, what we're all talking, what we've been talking about here since the beginning, is this notion of of confidence or trust. You know, how are we going to rebuild that? How are we going to build the trust around not just making safe and secure spaces for our our customers and our employees, but how are we going to rebuild that trust with those suppliers that you know, unfortunately, we. You know, there's a lot of bills that we're not going to be able to pay them uh, with that landlord that, you know, we've basically said, you know, forget about the next three to six months rent. How do we really create this? We're all in this together sort of thing where we sort of come to a solution and, and rethink our business models. Again, the variability where, you know, the, the risk is more shared, you know, amongst us all. You know, we might have to right, we have to rethink all that because, uh, you know, when we gain, then there's there's got to be a better, maybe a share of that gain. But then when we lose, there's got to probably be a better share of that loss as well. It's fascinating. It's so far reaching, isn't it? It really is. It's certainly going to be plenty of uh, business books written about this time in the uh, in the future. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can tell you the academics are, are you know, just all the information that they're having, that they're just already looking at and, and thinking about the studies, there'll be decades worth of of analysis that's going to come from this this large socioeconomic uh, experiment that this crisis has provoked. Definitely. Carl, this has been so interesting and, uh, you know, we've gone in so many different directions. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Well, it's, a, it's shared wisdom and, and it comes a lot of it comes from just conversations like these having with you and, and, our, and our fellow friends. So I really appreciate, again, the opportunity and uh, if you allow me, I'm going to close my eyes again and pretend that I'm in London in that pub. Well, just before you do close your eyes, Carl, <laughs> how can people get in touch with you if they want to continue the conversation? Where can they find out more? Yeah, it's been pretty easy to find. I think LinkedIn is, is sort of my baseline, but Carl Boutet, at Carl Boutet on Twitter as well. And those two are probably pretty straightforward. And uh, from there, you can be able to find my the coordinates. And, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pretty accessible person. Super. Well, thanks so much once again. And I'll let you put your VR headset on and get back to that pint of beer again. Oh, no. Get back to that pint of Guinness in that, in that, lo that lovely London <laughs> pub. All right, brother. Be well. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity. You too. Cheers. Cheers. 
So there we have it, my conversation with Cole Boutet there. Some really interesting insights and some trends to really take notice of, particularly about Amazon as well. Now, of course, they're already a force to be reckoned with in the world of retail, but it feels with that massive reinvestment, things could get a whole lot more competitive from their perspective. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. So do reach out either on LinkedIn or on Twitter. LinkedIn, I'm Oliver Banks and on Twitter at Ollie underscore Banks, O-L-L-I-E underscore Banks. And you can find the show notes from today over at obandco.uk slash 82, where you can also sign up for my free retail transformation briefings that give you an overview of the big retail transformation headlines from around the world. Plus, it includes curated insight from expert organizations that could just inform your next transformation. And it's absolutely free. It comes out every single week. So you can sign up on the show notes page, obandco.uk slash 82. And otherwise, all that remains for me to say is I hope you have a good week and I will catch you in the next episode coming at you very soon. Bye for now.